Welcome to the Kansas City Symphony's highest-rated podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony, and joining me for this very special episode is guest host and associate principal cellist, Susie Yang. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Um, but that was kind of a terrible introduction. R- really? Was it that bad? What, I mean, what do you mean? That was, that was great. I nailed it. It had confidence, gravitas, but was also soothing in a way, comforting, familiar. What more could you could you actually want, Susie? Okay, hold on for a second. I think I know someone who can do it a lot better. Jim, can you do this for us? Let's see. Should I use the Disney voice or a real voice? Uh-oh. Here's Disney. Welcome to the Kansas City Symphony's highest rated podcast. Beethoven walks into a bar. Today's special episode is hosted by Kansas City Symphony musicians, Mike Gordon and Susie Yang. That was pretty good. No, that was that was out of the park. That was amazing. Well, it's pretty easy for me. It's what I do all day long. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're so happy to have you on our podcast today. We have a super special guest, the voice of Hallmark Hall of Fame, NFL Films, CNBC, and the credits really go on and on. He is a native of North Dakota, but has called Kansas City his home for decades. Um, a one-time rock musician and actor who served our country in the Vietnam War. He has been generous enough to lend his iconic voice to the Kansas City Symphony Memorial Day celebration at the station for many years. This year, he's back. And with celebration at the station just a few days away, it seemed like the perfect time to get to know this veteran who has made Memorial Day just so awesome for us and for Kansas City. Jim Birdsall, welcome to our podcast. God, Susie, you cheated. You've got a script. We're not as good at this as you are. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I'm great with the script, too. It's harder to Google stalk you than it is most musicians. And uh, I have to say, I was I was uh, absolutely delighted to learn more about you. And, and we're going to get to all of that uh, in our conversation here. But, but I have been on stage with you um, so many times. And mm-hmm. we've never, unfortunately, had the occasion to meet. And if you'll if you'll forgive me for just a second, I I have to be a little bit of a fan. Um, so I, I remember the first time I played Memorial Day with you, and we had, uh, as always, the dress rehearsal outdoors where we run most of the script. And as soon as I heard your voice, you know, booming across from from the uh, the reflection of sound from the memorial, I thought, wait a minute, it's. It's that guy. I know that voice. Where do I know that from? And 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 I just realized that, you know, I, I had no idea who you were, and yet I have been hearing your voice in various places for most of my life. And I thought, how incredible is that, that, that you're, you know, in one sense, you know, a relatively anonymous guy like all the rest of us, and yet you're also this incredibly, you know, famous person for this famous voice. So, does this does this happen to you a lot? Or are you just walking around and you suddenly open your mouth and suddenly? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a strange uh, profession to be in in many ways because you are, as you said, kind of invisible, that guy that no one sees, but you hear. And that's your reaction is usually what most people go through. Uh, nowadays, I, I normally speak in a higher register. It, it is just not natural. It's a, it's a bar- I have a baritone voice, but I mean, it's, a, it's in a higher register. Part of that started to save my bottom end from not, you know, doing that kind of stuff all the time or, you know. But uh, it's just, I, I was a character actor, so I could 
my master's to my MFA is in in theater, and I work. I came to Kansas City initially it was to work at the Missouri Repertory Theater, as it was called then. It's now called the Kansas City Rep, and that was in 1980. And uh, I started doing voiceover work just to support my family. It just was on the side, just a little side gig, but that kept growing and growing and growing. And partly the reason was is that I I could uh, manipulate my voice in different tonalities different uh, uh, cadences, different uh, different reads altogether, so it wasn't sounding like the same person ever. And what happened is I started doing lots of different stuff. In many cases, I could be, I could hear myself on the air doing uh, one thing, and then the next ad would be me again, only a different voice, and then me again. And it, it just, uh, like other voiceover professionals in my world, there's lots of us that can do that. It's a, a skill level that we've developed over the years, I, men and women. It's just it's just what we do, and we're lucky enough to be in a situation, in a position where we start getting hired, and people start, you know, paying us to do that. <laughs> and, well, it's not that different as a musician. No, it's never that. It's the same as being a musician. I'm just damn lucky, as you guys are, to have a gig. It's hard for an artist to have a gig. I mean, it just is. And I don't care whether you're an actor, uh, a musician of any type, a dancer, uh, a, a painter, uh, any of the arts. We are constantly looking for work. It, some of us, like myself, have been lucky enough to build a base on which we we build everything else. But not everyone is. And it's a tough, tough business. It just is. Yes, of course. Jim, I would love to hear about the, the very first audition you took to do this kind of work. I don't know. I don't even, uh, you know, it's been so many years. I mean, it wasn't even an audition. Uh, I, I was uh, I was prominent in the theater and uh, a producer that, a radio and TV producer was a theater buff and, uh, you know, would hear me on stage and said, you know, that guy's got a good voice. I'm going to see if he will... Uh, considered doing a radio or TV commercial. And believe me, back in those days, I was so, my nose was so far up in the air as a classical actor. I was like, look down on that. <laughs> Ad work? Bashaw. <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I did it. It was a lot of fun. I found that I enjoyed the whole process so much. Not just doing it, but getting direction and listening and, and just and listening to the final product. You know, it's kind of like these podcasts, you know, you're going to put them together later. And they're, as you said, in one of your emails will sound smart. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was the same with me as finally hearing a, a finished uh, commercial. I was just amazed. I, I will tell you a story of what made me respect the art. Uh, this was many years ago. It was a Walmart commercial. I was the father in the commercial. I was still acting, not doing a lot of ad work. And uh, I'm playing the father, and there's a, a, a 10 or 12-year-old boy that's playing my son in this radio commercial. And then there's the announcer, who the, the boy and I have 10 seconds worth of interaction. The announcer has 20 minutes of straight copy. We walk into the studio, and you, if you've been in a recording studio, if you remember what they're like, you know, the glass window, and you're in the other end of the booth, and the producers are behind the glass with the engineer. And uh, we start out, my only line was, 
well, son, what do you think? I mean, something like that. And he would say, that's great, Dad, you know, <laughs> and and then the announcer would go, now at Walmart, we're going to have so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So we do it. First take, I screw up. I screw up almost every single take. The announcer gets it right, reading 20 seconds worth of copy, straight, cold, perfect. Bam. Wow. And I'm sitting there going, that's that's amazing. That's a skill level I don't have. I can't get through a five-word sentence without screwing up. <laughs> and that's when I went home and I started reading everything I could get. Everything from Shakespeare to ads in newspapers and in, in, in uh, magazines, the, the, the copy and in, in the ad work, out loud at different paces and different tonalities and different voices and practicing hours. I was uncompetitive enough that I do that, but <laughs> I just started practicing and practicing and working with time because your enemy as an announcer is time. You're working just like a musician. You have time signatures. You've got to make it in five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and make it sound like it's normal. But of course, it's not. And we've seen you, of course, be a master of that uh, at Celebration when you have to speak over music. Uh, yeah. Because, of course, the music is like a train. You know, it doesn't it doesn't stop. Uh, and And your ability to fit a lot of text into a specific amount of time and and know how to pace yourself over a relatively long period is pretty amazing. Well, that's the trick. That really is the trick. But I also have Michael Stern standing there, and I can see in the monitor that he's going, burp, burp. You know, I, do, I do know when to enter, you know, and thank God Michael's there going, go. <laughs> because if he's not there, hell, I'll just stand there all day long. <laughs> so, I mean, do you still get nervous or do you have any like oh, yeah. pre-concert rituals or anything? You have to drink like honey water or something? <laughs> no, I'll have scotch afterwards, but not, oh, nice. not okay. before. Yeah. Uh, part of this, uh, you, you mentioned my military service. I went into the army. All I've ever done, I should add, is I've only been an actor and a musician. And an announcer. That's it. I've never waited tables. I've never, I've never done any other job except working on farms before I started. Before I became a rock musician and started getting paid, but I was always paid well and I was always successful. Is I, thankfully, I was taking piano lessons from the time I was seven years old and six or seven, and so I could play. And I had a great ear. I could hear something and play it immediately. And uh, and I could sing, and and the time in the army is a, a time of uh, it's a tale of two service records. In one end uh, of the army, when I first went in, I was the infantry, so I was I was walking point for the first uh, three months I was there out in the bush, and my unit stood down, meaning they sent the flag home, and everybody that still had time and country were reassigned to another unit. I was reassigned to the 100 Air Force, uh, 100 Airborne Division. In transit, I uh, managed to hear a GI rock band, and they didn't have a keyboardist. <laughs> oh, I ran up to him drunk as a skunk, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I'd been doing for three days before I was back in the bush. And I said, I can play the piano. I can do that. And he said, well, uh, why don't you come to Camp Eagle and, uh, and audition for us? 
once I was in the band, I found out what that meant. Well, you can't get across country in the war zone, not unless you're going there on purpose. But I had been playing at the NCO club for all the uh, all the regular people at the transient uh, company. I've been playing the piano and singing every night for the last three nights. And so the first sergeant said, yeah, you can get on that truck and go to Camp Eagle and audition because they knew I could play. And I got into the 101st Airborne Rock Band. Oh, wow. And so we we traveled uh, to fire bases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as well as me playing the cymbals in the marching band, <laughs> which is another story. That's what I, but my real job was being in the rock band, but the other one was just this, this guy. <laughs> I had arms on me. They had big Sildjans that I had to just go, oh, geez, I had arms. At any rate, uh, so as I had a lot of experience working in front of large crowds because we would back up the Miss America tours and things like that when they would come into our, our base. We would be the warm-up act. And so there'd be thousands of people there. And then when I got back uh, playing in rock bands, I did a lot of rock concerts. So it, it doesn't make me nervous to get in front of people because hell, I was in the theater for years. I mean, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> I mean, you get nervous just like you get normal nervous. You know, you just little stomach and you kind of go, ah, okay, here we go. It's going to be what it's going to be. And there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> that's yeah, and that's just the way it is. You, you have no choice. Once you walk out there, you're going to do what you're going to do. And if you screw up, just don't stop talking because the audience doesn't <laughs> know. <laughs> well, I have to say, I think it's such a beautiful thing that um, you are, well, first of all, uh, we're a soldier and, and I must say, thank you, uh, of course, for your service to the country, yeah. but also your service to Kansas City and to the Kansas City Symphony, um, because it is such a, a perfect um, marriage of lived experiences that you were a uh, that you are a veteran, that you are a musician, you are an actor, a, a, a voice artist, uh, and so having you do this event with us uh, so often is is just incredible. Um, but I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, about this year's uh, guest artists, too. The Resilient uh, are back. And I can't recall uh, if you were with us the first time they played with us, but they are a group of uh, a band of uh, wounded uh, soldiers, uh, yeah. most of whom I believe uh, came up through the Music Corps program uh, and yeah. started, started their own band. When they were with us before, just an incredibly um, moving performance. Yeah. And we had the opportunity to speak with their lead vocalist, uh, Tim Donnelly uh, over the pandemic. And his, his story is, is beyond belief uh, for anyone mm -hmm. out there who uh, gets a chance, please do go listen to that conversation and listen to their music. But what is it by question that I'm finally at is uh, what is it? What is it like um, for you to hear their music? Uh, if you haven't met them before, you know, what do you anticipate it will be like uh, to meet them as as a, another veteran and musician yourself? Because they're just incredible guys. Well, I you know I spent a good deal of time with them the last time we were here because we were okay. backstage together the whole time. And uh, combat veterans, unlike you know, uh, when you're in the service, not everybody's in combat. It's uh, you know most of us are most of most of the people are are support uh, the people that are in combat are 
you know, that's why they call us grunts or whatever you want to call us, jarheads. We're the guys that are, and women are, that are in a forward position. It's easier to talk to a fellow veteran that has been in combat than it is to talk to someone that hasn't been. It's easier for a soldier or Marine or Navy veteran or Air Force veteran to uh, converse with uh, someone that's been a, there themselves because we've all gone through that stuff. Now, we haven't been wounded and suffered like they have, but wounds are, uh, wounds are hidden. There are hidden wounds, whether you are physically injured or whether you are coming back with PTSD. And everybody, I don't know anybody that doesn't come back with little of it or a lot of it. It just depends on the individual and the situations they were in and what they've done to address it once they return. Um, and the blessing for these guys is the music program that has focused them. And as you know, as musicians, anytime you have been in emotional, psychological, serious problems, music has helped you focus because it focuses you. You have to focus on what you're doing and it's outside yourself and not within yourself. Although they, they, they intertwine. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Music is very, very healing um, in that way. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's very powerful. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have them back and you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, they, uh, they are an amazing group of guys. I have to say, I, they're, they're incredible. And I can't, I can't wait to hear them again. So I, I want to change gears uh, a little bit for a moment, just just back to your work, because when we spoke on the phone the other day, um, I have to admit, when I picked up the phone, I was somewhat ignorant uh, as to what your day is as a voice artist. <laughs> and and you were you were speaking to me about how you start at you know seven or eight o'clock in the morning, and you're in your studio, and you're waiting either for the phone to ring or to get an email from you know NBC or an affiliate or somewhere, and they give you some some copy to read. Uh, but you're, you know, then you're freed up later in the afternoon. And I just thought, oh, wow, what an, what an interesting life actually just be there <laughs> on call. You know, these, these huge corporations or clients or whomever just call you up, say, here, we need you to read this. I assume they give you perhaps some direction. By the way, everyone should, should Google Jim and there's a page that, that comes up, uh, should be easy to find. I guess it's from, from your management or something, but there are samples of, it's got to be at least a dozen uh, different little excerpts of your work. And and as you were talking about earlier, you hear the way you modulate, you know, your voice for a different, for a different thing. Um, and I just sat there thinking, Oh, that's him too. Oh, that's him. Oh, this thing is him. That thing is him. And, and you really, you know, you took on a totally different personality for each thing, but to, so talk about your day a little bit. What, what does it mean to be you in your studio? The phone rings, NBC wants you to record something. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's like anything else. You get so used to it. You know, as you're asking the question, I'm going, Oh, what do I do here? You know, I, I, <laughs> You know, to anybody else, they're going to say, this is the easiest gig in the world. Where do I get this job? And, <laughs> and that's why it's tougher to have this job now than it was when I was starting out. When I was starting out, there was no Internet. Uh, and so there was no, uh, I couldn't connect. If I was doing an ad, I, I would 
I would go to Minneapolis to record different things. I would go to Chicago or New York or wherever you'd fly. It, it was a big thing. For instance, when I started with NFL Films, they flew me out there to record at the NFL Films headquarters. But now, with uh, technology, uh, it's changed everything in the last, well, it's nearly 20 years with the rise of ISDN. That's really when it changed dramatically, 98, right around there, 96, 97, 98. I started with William Morris Agency, and uh, so everything was coming to me from both coasts, from LA or New York, and you would uh, audition, and then you would uh, either get the gig or not get the gig. I mean, everybody, it's, nowadays there's thousands of people doing it because everybody has a computer and can buy a microphone. But back in those days, no, you, it didn't exist like that. You, It would cost you $5,000 just for the ISDN box oh, wow. to hook up with a major box somewhere else. So. You had to spend some serious money to even do it. But my day-to-day, -day, I'll give you today, starts started out. I can even look here and see what, uh, what my first things were here. I started out my day with um, an insert for a, a show called Squawk Box that runs at 5 in the morning here. So that was my the beginning of my day, and I'll give you an example of what that was. I started my day with the Aflac trivia questions. And, and these are usually business oriented because this is the CNBC network and that's stock market business. That's all it is. And there were three of the questions. I'll read you one of them. Uh, time now for today's Aflac trivia question. What movie did Apple use to hype its QuickTime format in 1999? The answer when CNBC Squawk Box continues. Now the answer to today's Aflac trivia question. <laughs> what movie did Apple use to hype its QuickTime format in 1999? The answer, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. The QuickTime campaign sparked a net-clogging 25 million downloads of the movie trailer. That's how I started my day with three other ones like that. And uh, then you get into the promo land well, here's for Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Coming up, is real estate headed for a reckoning? Cramer takes you to the top floor <laughs> next. And, so, and then you get into the other type of, you heard about it, now see it. The Musk interview, tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, CNBC. So it, it, it's, those are like three or four different things. The sports stuff that I do is a narrative. They're a long-form narrative that usually goes on a CD. Like when I do the Chiefs highlights and things like that. Those are long-form narratives. And, and then during the football and basketball season, I do uh, for, the, for ESPN, runs on ESPN, there's... Uh, the SEC network, which is the Southeastern Conference, you know, Alabama and all those people. And uh, I do a weekly show that highlights each team every week. And there's 14 teams. And so you do a different show every week, talk about the game they're going to play and interview the coaches, etc. And then you do the same for basketball. And then you go into uh, oh, the baseball championships. <laughs> so you, you're you're constantly going. You're constantly getting stuff, and the stuff you get, I get from the affiliates or 
whatever news is happening in Portland and Spokane and and all of the state of Montana. If you were in Montana, I do the entire state. I mean, like six or seven different TV stations in Montana. Wow. So I have to <laughs> imagine you must get, or I mean, I should say you must. Do you get caught up in the drama often of what you're reading, either in news or in in sports or or? No, you you try to. Uh, I mean, unless it, unless it's asked for, unless they ask for that, I can I can turn it on if I have to. That's not a, <laughs> an actor. I mean, it depends on how important it is. If it's important, then I can do it, and I can be serious about it. I can be helpful, but I can be loving and caring. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> I am a, a professional liar, is what I am. I. I lie for a living, and not just small lies like one and one with one person or two. I like to work with millions. <laughs> <laughs> and like on average, how long does it take you for something like an insert um, to record? Can it be hours or just depends? <laughs> no. <laughs> three takes. Three takes. Okay, great. I send, I send them three to four takes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they choose. And they can mix and match out of their technology allows them to pull one line here, one line there, just like your guy is going to fix the, our <laughs> podcast. Uh, it's uh, it's perfect. He's nothing to fix. <laughs> yeah. So, it, no, it's no, I've been doing it for so long that uh, my skill level is high. I have to pretend that it's going to take me longer than it does because it, it yeah. just doesn't. I, I mean, well, you know, they're. I've been the voice of CNBC for uh, 25 years, Wow! you know, and I've been the voice. So think of all the stockbrokers now are in their 40s and 50s that are young. They were young lions when they started hearing me talk. <laughs> yeah, and now they're they're older people. <laughs> well, it's amazing. It's really I mean, what you just described, it's not that different from when we record something and. And of course, it's uh, very expensive to get 80 people in a hall with microphones and producers and such. So, yeah, it's usually, you know, two, three, maybe four takes of something uh, is is the most we can do. And then and then as a as a performer, like, you know, you're you're a performer um, in this context, you you do your job and then the final stuff is left to the to the producers and the editors to figure out. So it's actually it's actually very, very similar. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of business we have to take care of. Uh, and it was in, it was in the fine print of your contract, which I know you read thoroughly. Um, <laughs> we, contract. Is there a contract? <laughs> oh, they all say that. They all say that, but it was there. Our lawyers have checked. So, um, this, this podcast is called Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Yeah. And um, more often than not, we're interviewing other other music, other orchestral musicians uh, on this show. And we always ask our guests the same two questions. The first one is, what is your favorite beverage? And the second one is, if you were enjoying this beverage with Beethoven, what might you ask him? And certainly, if if you want to ask Beethoven a question, uh, I totally invite you to do so. But I want to I want to make this a little bit more broad today. Part of the reason we ask that question is, you know, for for musicians, possibly other people, but certainly musicians, Beethoven is this, you know, godlike, almost mythical 
personality yeah. uh, from our from our history, this figure. And and you know, when we play his music, when we play anybody's music, especially when it's a person who's dead, we're trying to get into their mind as we read their music. And so, you know, we all think, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you could ask uh, Beethoven a question about his music? So for you, um, and maybe it's Beethoven, maybe it's not, who, who is that? Is, do you have a, a godlike uh, artist character who you, who you would want to ask a question that would just reveal some, uh, some mystery that you've always wondered about? Perhaps a rock star? Someone other than <laughs> Beethoven or someone like that? Just someone for you, yeah. Not necessarily even a musician, but maybe a musician or another actor? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, no, there's no actors. I, I'm, I'm fascinated more with the... Uh, I'm fascinated with religious figures. Okay. Uh, uh, that's just my personal fascination with them because uh, uh, all religions are in the ilk type region, wherever... Uh, at base, they're all the same. Uh, basically, is basically the uh, you know, golden rule is that's the base of almost every known religion out there that we know of. And uh, so, the questions I always want to ask, and you can pick any one of the leaders of any religion or belief structure. Why do you add so much to the original message as to make it misunderstandable? And that's my question. Why did you let them do that? And of course, they they couldn't. They can't answer that, and nor could I. I mean, but it's it's something that drives me and drives me kind of crazy because it, in many ways, it's the belief structures like that are the root of almost every discord that exists. It seems at some level, it's it's there, and uh, I'm always curious. Where'd that come from? That is that is a profound question, and and I I like that uh, I like that thought very much. And I'm now you're making me think. <laughs> Perhaps in the future of the podcast, we need to stop asking specifically about Beethoven, and maybe it should be exactly that question: who who or what is this uh, entity that you would want to ask a question? Because that is uh, that is a very thought provoking answer. So thank you for that, Jim. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Oh, we're, we're done. No, well, no, there's, no, not there's yet. one <laughs> more little little tidbit. There's one more little tidbit uh, that uh, that. W- so we often, uh, our listeners know, we often recommend some listening, or we uh, sometimes throw in a segment that we call our top five. It's a top five. It's a top five. It's the 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 top five. Beethoven walks into a bar. Yes, and um, since you are a fellow music lover, we thought it'd be fun if we all shared, you know, maybe our top five concerts we've ever been to or perhaps performed in. Um, so it was kind of, it was a little hard to go through all my you know, 30 whatever plus years of playing music and finding concerts. But uh, my top five are like, um, I have Punch Brothers. Heard them here live in KC at Grinders. They're amazing. Um, I actually saw John Mayer at Ravinia way before he was famous. And I thought that was wonderful. Um, I would say the first time I performed Beethoven's Opus 132 String Quartet. Um, Beethoven is also one of my favorite composers. Uh, early 2000 Takash Quartet. Apocalyptica in Denmark, where they bashed the cellos on the stage. 
kind of made an impact. What about you, Mike? I like that. So, <laughs> so I have to, I have to start off with a shameless one, and and this is true. It's not just because we're on the podcast with Jim here. The last time the resilient was here for uh, the resilient were here for a celebration at the station. Truly, truly, one of the most memorable and meaningful concerts I have played in or been at. So I'm really looking forward to them coming back. Um, fairly recently, I got to hear the Berlin Philharmonic play Mahler 7 in Chicago. That was definitely uh, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, many, many years ago, I got to hear Carlos Santana live, which was really a thrill. Um, and similarly, I got to hear Elvis Costello play once in a relatively small theater uh, and we were right up front and it was just an amazing, amazing experience. He's an incredible performer. Um, and then, and then this one is nerdy, but uh, I have, I have to also say Emmanuel Pahoud when he gave a, a recital in Boston, when I was young, Emmanuel Pahoud, for those of you who are not Pahoud fans and you should be is um, actually the principal flutist of the Berlin Philharmonic. And I got to hear him uh, as a teenager and it was one of the most inspirational performances for me. So uh, that that leaves us with Jim. Do you uh, do you have a few favorites that you can think of off the top of your head? Yeah, Jesus, you guys were making me. I was going, God, concerts. I haven't gone to a concert in a long time, except at the uh, at the symphony, and that was and the last time I was there. Was to see a uh, a David Bowie uh, thing that was going on, oh, and sure. that was good. But uh, that was my favorite. I mean, it's just it was really good. <laughs> Uh, I think um, I, I saw years ago, I was uh, going through, uh, I was in a USO tour. My, and uh, after I got out of, uh, out of Vietnam, a uh, couple of years after that, I, I did it. I, I directed and put together a, uh, along with the head of the theater department I was at, a USO tour uh, to Europe. And as the tour ended, we were kind of left on our own for a couple of weeks just to wander around with our Eurail passes. And in uh, Munich, I saw Chick Corea and Return to Forever. Ooh. And this is 1975. So that was amazing. And we just wandered into the place, didn't even know it existed, just wandered in and sat down and had a great concert. My favorite times in Kansas City are the times when I get to hear Bobby Watson play. Yeah, He is wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is spectacular. I, I can never get over what he does. And I'm a, a big jazz fan because my daughter's a jazz singer, uh, Megan Birdsall. And, uh, and her husband is Ben Leifer. He's a jazz bassist. So I, I, I did not know that. I know. I do like jazz a lot. And uh, I try to see some of those things. I'm trying to think of, uh, we used to have, uh, I can't remember all the, the different people that, uh, there used to be a, a a jazz festival, the Kansas City Jazz Festival. It hasn't been around for many years, but they used to bring in great artists for that. I can't think of names offhand. I, I can, but I don't know whether they were there then. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the rest of them, I, I played, uh, I backed up the Beach Boys with a band I was in for a while and did the opening act. Cool. And, and uh, saw the Beach Boys and uh, met them personally. They were great. I thought they were just terrific. Uh, also, the uh, another group I played with and backed up was uh, the Four Seasons. 
I don't know if you remember the four yeah. seasons, Frankie Valley and the four seasons. Oh, nice. yeah. Mm-hmm. They were amazing. They were just like amazing. <laughs> you know, I didn't think they would be, but they blew me away. <laughs> and uh, other than that, let's see what else. I did a show with the symphony. I don't know if you guys probably weren't there then at all. Uh, we did Midsummer Night's Dream, the Missouri rep uh, did. Uh, they, the symphony was behind us with the chorus and everything, uh, doing Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream. Wow. Uh, so oh. it was matched to the play itself. So we would perform, and then the music would come in at the, where Mendelssohn, because he based it right on the, on the play itself, on Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And that was one of the most spectacular experiences I've ever had. Truly, truly one of the best. And that, we should do that again. That that was probably before my time in the symphony and i've been i asked michael while. about it uh, i asked michael about it and he said he'd he'd done it a couple other times at other places so it's it's not you know, beyond his ken and and yeah and certainly we did it here and that was when uh who was who was the conductor before Public, oh uh, oh you're talking about um uh mclaughlin bill mclaughlin yeah right and uh, he was the conductor then oh wow yeah and that's who that's who put it together. Oh, terrific! Yeah, that that is at least a top five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, we can't thank you enough, and we can't wait to see you at Union Station on Sunday, May twenty eighth at eight p.m. If you can't make it out, watch the whole performance live on KCPT. As always, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. There's much more music to come this season with the Kansas City Symphony. As always, you can go to kcsymphony.org to purchase tickets for all remaining concerts. And even more importantly, concerts for Michael Stern's final season with the Kansas City Symphony starting next fall. Speaking of which, next time we will finally sit down with our music director, Michael Stern, to learn about all that is to come in his final season with the Kansas City Symphony. It promises to be a grand celebration of everything the symphony and the city have accomplished with Michael over his long tenure. And we'll talk about the man who is to become his successor here in Kansas City, Matthias Pincher. All this next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. (laughs) 